Well, if you have a Bible, would you turn with me to um, Isaiah chapter 9? I would like to read the first eight chapters, but uh, time forbids it, because you have to understand why God puts this prophecy at this particular time. But we'll try and link it together. So Isaiah chapter 9, a very well-known passage. The key word in one sense is nevertheless, in spite of all that's gone before, verse 1, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdened burdened them. The bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, for to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this that is the word of God well thank you Richard for praying for the nation because the land is in a mess and uh, next week it may be even greater it's not dissimilar from Isaiah's time. There are a lot of parallels that we haven't time to apply. So come with me. 2,750 years will be in Jerusalem. And the people are worried. In fact, they're terrified, some of them. It's all to do with the countries on the east. Certainly, the Syrians have joined with the Um, the northern tribes to to protect themselves but on the east you have this massive army nation growing called Assyria and they're building up their their armaments and the people it's what you might call project fear they've got a new king the old king is dead they've got a new king his name is Hehas he's a wheeler dealer it's not much cop really. And, um, and the people are full of fear. Now, Isaiah speaks to the people who listen, and he says, first of all, do not fear. 
I, I could give you all the references, but they're in the previous chapters, usually in chapter 8. Do not fear what they fear. He's talking to those who are believing. And then there are another groups in the different parties, you may recognize this, with their little agendas, planning things, conspiracies, and how they're going to proceed once the leader is toppled. And he says, do not call conspiracy anything that the people call conspiracies. But the, the overall picture is the people are in darkness. There's a, a, a despondency, a gloom about the land. They, they've turned their back on God. They're walking away from God. And um, there's all kinds of, of sin. Of, 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 they're full of, uh, of superstition. Oh, they want the future. They want to know the future. And they've turned to Eastern religions. They want to know the future, so they turn to the dead, that mutter and do strange things. Um, they turn to astrology, and, and it's all there. You read the, the earlier part, this is the, the background. And, and they're, they're terrified about, well, I made a stronger word, but they're, they're worried. What about this great, the countries on the east? Oh, having said that, the country, you read it, there's a lot of affluence. Read the early chapters, there's a lot of fine dining in Israel. There's a lot of uh, high fashion with the women who dress very well. There's a lot of silver and gold. The GDP is very good. Not only that, people are buying property. Uh, that's what they're doing. Isaiah says, war to those who add house to house and uh, join field to field. Buy houses, invest, buy to rent. You know, property is always good. Buy land. And they're into that. The, the sad thing is the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. You have to take my word for it. It's in the early chapters. And um, it's, it's a bad time. And the people have turn their back on God um, and so there's a darkness and gloom and they're trusting that which is false and futile and he says in verse 17 of chapter 8 the Lord will bring upon your people and on the house of your fathers a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah he will bring the king of Assyria that's the thing they're dreading and yet Isaiah, Isaiah said it's going to happen and um, there's a darkness in the land. There's a heaviness. There's a spiritual darkness. There's a moral darkness. There's a religious darkness. The, the, the clergy in the pulpits, as it were, are preaching a lot of rubbish. And Isaiah's trying to warn them. He says the people are walking darkness. They live as, as if God isn't God, as if he's not in charge. And, and so it leads to, to panic and, and all kinds of stuff. And, uh, and these people are facing judgment and death and, and, the, and the, the wrath of God. There's a darkness. A parallel, a thing that occurred to me. You remember earlier this year, there was um, in Thailand, some boys, they were a football team. And their coach said, let's, as a treat, we'll go caving. Now, I'm part of the world in Yorkshire, where they're not far from where I used to live was a lot of caving and I, I'm not foolish enough to go down but I have colleagues, friends who used to go down but this, this was a massive system this was huge 
And they took these lads on a bit of a jolly, really. They would take them in. And they went several kilometers in. Huge, huge, big caverns and narrow passages, total darkness, you know. And it was fun. But then they turned round and they realized that the weather had changed and the heavens had opened. And they came back and they couldn't get back. And so huge caverns, bigger than this room, were filled with water. And there's, there's no way they could get back. They would have to wait months until the waters subsided. And they were in darkness. It was just a matter of time before their end came. Total darkness. And uh, oh, it was fun, fun to start with, but this was tragic. So what, And I, I said, it's like that, as it were, spiritually. So what does he say? Well, he says this. He says in verse 10, verse 16 of chapter 8, bind up the testimony and seal up the law among my disciples. In other words, get my people to realize what the word of God is. That is why we do this on a Sunday morning. Important, the people of God Know what the word of God is. This is the one thing that matters in this land, in your life, is the word of God, the scriptures. And so Isaiah's command is, bind up the testimonies. Make sure they know what we believe in this time of darkness. Um, get, it in, get it into their hearts. Because um, once a nation leaves the word of God, it goes off the rails and... and uh, the believing community must be drawn back to the scriptures. But actually, he said, he wants to make it simple, Isaiah, because these things are so important. He wants them to get the message. He said, actually, it's really all about three boys, three children. The first one, well, his wife is pregnant. She has a child. It's his first child. And his wife says, what should we call this child? And she said, we'll call this child Shia Jashub which means a remnant will return. In other words, when you look at this boy, there is hope. We are going, this nation is going to go through terrible times of exile and punishment and imprisonment. Desperate times. But there will always be a community of believing people in Israel who will return. People who believe the word of God and live by it. And that little boy is a sign of hope. Then his wife gets pregnant again. And she has a little boy, and uh, she says, or he says to her, we're going to call him Mahashala Hashbash. Not a great name, you may think. Mahashala Hashbash, not being used many recently. Uh, but it's a frightening name, really, because it means quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. Quick to the plunder. So every time she goes out to shout for the boy, Mahashala Hashbash. He said, I want you to look at that boy to, to remind you that judgment will come. Swift and sudden. God is not messing around. What he said he will do. He's, he said it in the word years ago through Moses and it, it will come to pass. If you live that way, he will punish you. He keeps his word. And so this judgment is imminent. And you see, Isaiah says in chapter 8, he says, here I am and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols from the Lord Almighty. This is not a joke. These little boys, I just want you to understand. Every time you say their word, this is God's word to you. 
And, um, and it's, it's coming. There's a judgment coming. Uh, well, what do the people do? Well, Isaiah says, they look upward and they curse the king and God. Well, that's what people do when their fear comes. They curse the prime minister or the leader and they blaspheme God. That's what happens. And that's what they're doing here. They curse the king and curse God. It was ever thus. But, but God says, you know, but God's going to do something. And he says in verse 22 of chapter 8, Then they will look towards the earth and they will see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom. And they will be thrust into utter darkness. It's very dark. And this is reality. But then we come to the good news. Look in the Bible. Verse 1, chapter 9, first word. The key word is nevertheless. That's the gospel word. In spite of all this, God is going to do something. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. In the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, if you're in Jerusalem, to honor the Galilee of the Gentiles is nonsense. Because nobody in Jerusalem like that place in the north. By the way, Zebulun and Naphtali are the two northern tribes in Israel. And it's around Galilee, modern Galilee, modern today. The problem was, every time a nation invaded Israel, and they had it often, they would t- take the best people out and use them as slaves or s- some form of worker. And then they would Im- put back their own people in. You know, free housing, good land as it were. And so the land you've got Arameans, you've got Hittites, you've got Canaanites, you've got Mesopotamians, and a few Jews. And they all mixed together and interbred over the centuries. And so it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. It was a mongrel nation. The people in Jerusalem thought they weren't really Jews, they're just a mixed lot. Well, Isaiah said, it's there that God is going to do the greatest work he has ever done on earth. Galilee of the nations. Really? It's weird. But that's what he says. <laughs> he says, what's going to happen? A child. This is a third child. Now, this is not the child of his wife. This is a child that's going to come. A child is born. A son is given. Now, this is, if you look at the Old Testament, this is what's known as enthronement language. In the the king always represented God to Israel. He was a son in one sense. Well, this is enthronement language. And, and uh, he, the government will be upon his shoulders. Um, see, the world tries to get security and peace. God says, I will show you the only way to get security and peace. You say, what on earth has that to do with Jesus, with Christmas you know, what is it all to do with us? Well, Matthew says in his gospel, let me read it. When Jesus heard that John, that John the Baptist had been put in prison, he returned to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfill, this, Matthew says, this is the fulfillment of that which was 700 years before, to fulfill that which was said through the prophet Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the way to the sea along the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, 
a light as dawn. God, you see, what God is offering is not more words. It's not a new plan. It's a person is coming, a baby. Oh yes, they're going to go into exile. 735 BC, the uh, Assyrians come and take the, 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 the northern tribes, the ten tribes, into Assyria, slaves, exile. And then later, 587, the Babylonians come from the east and they ravish Jerusalem and, and Benjamin, all those tribes, and they take those into exile. All that's going to happen. They will return 70 years later. But that will, that will happen because God has given his word. And it will happen. And uh, the temple will be rebuilt to some degree by Herod and, and others. But the thing is, now let's work this out. This is, for seven centuries, this child doesn't appear. They have to wait. And that's what we're called to do. Many times we have to trust that God's sweeping plan for the ages sweeping in front for the nations, will take place. These people, they don't see it. They just see what God has promised in other ways. But he will do it. And he does it. And, um, and this child is born. Well, Isaiah says this is what this son will be like. And because Jesus fulfills it perfectly. Now, this is not the son of a Jewish king, as some scholars have said. You would never give these names to a Jewish king's son. These were the... They're too divine, as it were. This is a, a divine person, a human, but divine. In fact, in chapter 7, you remember, he is called Emmanuel. This child will be called Emmanuel. Now, I know in our days, people call their children Emmanuel, but you would never do that in, in, in that day. Now, this child is no mere mortal. He is fully God, as well as fully man. But we'll come to that. Well, what is he like? Well, let's look at it. You know it well. He will be called Wonderful Counselor. Now the word wonderful simply means supernatural. That which is glorious, ineffable, indescribably wonderful. And he is the one who gives wisdom. He's full of wisdom, this person. You see, we're in a place of darkness. The first thing we need is light. In our culture, we need light. Does anybody know how to live properly? Does anybody know the way that I, you should live in life? The first thing we need in life is light, understanding, wisdom. How shall I live? And uh, Jesus comes uh, as the giver of light. In him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, says Paul. Jesus says, look, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is... The giver of wisdom. We, we see as we study his life, this supernatural person. He's never stopped for an answer. He's never, no problem thwarts him. Nothing overcomes him. No problem is too difficult. His wisdom is sublime. His teaching is sublime. He knows the human race better than anyone. He knows the future. He knows how life works for you in your office, in your school, in your home, with your money, with your sex life, with your emotions. He's the only one who, can, who gives you understanding how to live. He is the light of the world. And we're called to follow him. And, that's, and he comes. And he will lead us if we will submit to him. And he will give, give us all the light we need for work, for life, for everything. 
But you say, well, that's true, but I need more than that. I need help. <laughs> and he is, Isaiah says, well, he is the mighty God. He is the mighty God. Look what he says. He is the mighty God. He, he comes in weakness, yeah, but he will grow and he will defeat all the enemies of man. Evil that's in you, fear, death, Satan, he defeats them all. He comes as a child, but this child in, in, the, arms of, in the arms of Mary is El Gabor, the mighty God. Now, some scholars say, well, it just means the, the powerful warrior. No, it doesn't. It means he says what he is. He is the mighty God. In the, in the 10th chapter, it's used of Yahweh himself. No, this is none other than Yahweh in the flesh. And he comes. <laughs> See, you would never give this name El Gabor to a, a human. In one sense, it's too audacious. It's blasphemous. And no, this is Emmanuel, God with us. And he comes to give help, my friends. He comes to give help. Jesus says, I have come to set the captives free. I've come, that's my mission. You see, many of us and many of you are bound by, by fears, by addiction, by things, by captivity and bondage and things of the past, guilt and all the things that drain of us of our humanity. He said, I have come as the mighty one to set you free, to give you life in all its fullness. You see, we're, we're in darkness. And Jesus says, the sad thing is, we love darkness because actually it covers up the grot and the sinfulness and the selfishness and the depravity that's in me. So I'm quite happy to die. I don't want too much light. And not only that, I'm dead spiritually. <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't, my will is not free. The only, the only will I have is to do that which is wrong. The Apostle Paul says, that which I don't want to do, I find myself doing. There's, I have a bias that runs always to do my own thing, my selfish thing. Get whatever words you like to God. Tell him to go. I, I want my, there's a darkness. Who can bring the human person to life? See, the Christian life is not to make you better, my friends. The Christian life is to make you alive. It's to bring you to life. Not just to make better people. We're not into morality in itself. No, no, we're into new life. And Jesus comes as the mighty God to bring us to life. I mean, you know, the, the wise men got it right. The three wise men, whoever they were, they saw that this person was divine. In some sense, this babe. And they worshipped. They worshipped. And uh, even in, in the apparent weakness, he comes empty-handed a frail baby and he dies in apparent weakness this child in this cattle shed it's, it's a paradox isn't it it's a paradox that means it doesn't make sense in one sense but he has to come as a man because man has sinned and God has judged man as sinners and he, he comes as our representative to, to live and die in our place he comes in weakness and shares our lot. He moves into our neighborhood and comes and lives among us. And, um, and people see that he is the mighty God. If you look, you know, remember when the children of Israel were coming out of Egypt and they were pursued by the Egyptian army and they come to the Red Sea. 
How do you cross it? God spoke. And the Red Sea. And it said there was a wall to the left and a wall to the right of water. And they crossed on dry land. Well, when Jesus was in the boat with his 12 young men, there was a storm that frightened them. Terrified. And what does he do? He said, quiet. Be still. And their mouths dropped and it became calm. Why? Because this is El Gabor, the mighty God. And, the, and, and for three years they watch him. He sees blind people seeing like that. The deaf speak, the dumb speak. Sorry, the deaf hear, the dumb speak. And then he sees paralytic, they see paralytic people. And he says, stand up. And they stand up. And he sees the lepers were covered with sores. Their skin is as clean as a baby's bottom, Yeah. Wonderful, wow. And more than that, dead people are brought to life. A man has been in a grave for 10, four days in the Middle East. They stink. And he comes out full of life. Why? Because this is the mighty God. And John the Apostle says, these are just signs. If you really want the truth, they're plain to all. These are signs that this is none other than El Gibor, the mighty God. And, uh, it, and, and Isaiah says, you know, we rejoice because we, through this apparent weak man as a human being, miracles work. It's like he says, like Gideon. Remember Gideon with his 300 men, you've got this vast Midian army coming, hundreds of them, thousands of them, and the three of them just put them to flight. Why? Because God is in it. <laughs> as God is in it, they just rejoice. God is at work. And that's what it's about here. You see, we don't just need light in life, my friends. We need help. We need, I need help, my friends. Not just more knowledge. Let's go back to the boys in the cave. How are you going to get those boys out? The world was looking. They genuinely were... How can you get boys to travel several hundred meters underwater when they've never... Swam underwater in their lives in pitch black darkness. How do you do it? What did you know that you know it happened? They got the, some of the world's best drivers and they, they came in and they, and they came and they, they dove in and he, they took them out one by one. They didn't just want light, my friends, they wanted help. And so each boy was yoked to a, a diver by a rope. And not only that, he was yoked by an oxygen tube. The driver carried an extra cylinder of oxygen and he was, it was joined to the young lad with a mask and they swam and followed each driver. See, Jesus came and died. He went to the depths of depravity and he died on the cross. The wrath and judgment of God fell on him, my friends. The world shook. There was an earthquake. Nothing had happened like before. Heaven was silent. God's Judgment fell on our sin in him. But you know, my friends, he didn't just die for the world. He died for people like you with names. You know, those, those expert uh, divers didn't have a symposium on, you know, speleology and how to 
get people out. No, they came and they went and they, they took one by one and they led them out and they fed oxygen and they pulled them out one by one. Jesus came and with his strength he got hold of you and he put life into you and he joined you to himself forensically, penally, dynamically, aerobically. You are joined to Christ forever by his spirit. That's why he came. And he's taken us out. And if he hasn't taken you out, well, We'll pray for you this morning. And, and Christ has come to deal with all your needs, my friends. Your, your sin, your evil, the bondage and the addictions and the fears that are in you. But he's, he says, you know, I do want understanding. I do want help, but I would like to be loved. And he says, well, he is the everlasting father. He will rule. He's not the father in the Trinity, but he will rule like a father. He comes meek and lowly, but he will come as a father. And as a father knows his child, he knows you. As a father loves his child individually, he knows you. In all your miserable ways, he comes as a father and gives comfort to you. He comes. He knows all about you and he will come. And um, we can take all our problems to him because he's our father. Well, he's like a father. He takes us to the father as well. And, but the great thing, he is the everlasting father. In other words, his love for you will never stop. I was, a friend of mine reminded me of a, a thing that was in the paper a few years back. And there's this young man died of a serious illness and, and he bequeathed in his will to his young daughter that every birthday she would receive a, a, a bunch of flowers and a card. But the story that I picked up on, this was her 21st birthday and it said in the will, this flower, the bouquet of flowers will cease at the 21st. In other words, you don't get one after that. No more flowers after the 21st. And this was the 21st birthday. My friends, there will never come a day, Christine, when his love for you will cease. Never. There will never be, there's never a, an addendum to his will. It cuts off at a certain time. No, he is the everlasting father. He's, his love never changes. Oh, we change him. We put the stuff out on the mantelpiece, the crib, you know, the Mary and Joseph and the little baby and the wise men, the little... You know, porcelain things. But in January, we'll put them all back in the box and off they go in the loft. Well, people like that with Jesus. Well, yeah, Christmas is great. But he is the everlasting one. His mercy knows no end. <laughs> he never changes. He governs his people with fatherly care forever. His pre- we will never, he will never forsake us. And today is at the right hand of God praying for you and me. You see, he's not only with us, he's under us, upholding us. He's not only with us and under us, he's in us by his spirit. He will never leave us. He is the everlasting father. Oh no, he is, he's lifted on that cross. He came and he dealt with our sin and our guilt and our fears. And on that Easter day, he rose victorious. 
And he, he will never change. His love will never ebb. And, and, and as we read, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And the government will be on his shoulders. The destiny of our land and our world does not rest on the shoulders of Mr. Trump or Mr. Putin or the president of the Chinese Republic or the president of the, of the EU or any of the members in our parliament. The government is upon his shoulders. The government of the world is upon his shoulders. Any, any, neither was he on the shoulders of Caesar Augustus or King Herod, or any other world leaders. The government of the church is on his shoulders. From life's first breath, sorry, life's birth cry to my final breath, Jesus commands our destiny. That's it. He's the everlasting one. You'll never come to the end of his love for you. But finally, he is the Prince of Peace. He is the Prince of Peace. I mean, look at the world we're in. I mean, look at the world he came to. The hostility, the brutality, the hatred, the strife. We failed. Don't buy a newspaper today. It doesn't get any better than news. Save your money. Save your money, my friends. I mean, any statistic you want about man's Inhumanity to man. We celebrated last month a hundred years of the uh, end of the First World War. The, the last century, 20th century, the most civilized, educated, developed century this world has ever known. 360 million men and women were killed in wars or by their own government. I mean, can you believe it? And things in one sense are not getting better. But Jesus comes. He comes. See, we fail. We need help. To quote two two great prophets, Paul McCartney and John Lennon, you know, we can work it out. No, my friends, we can't work it out. We have tried and failed. Or use a better song from them. Help! I need somebody. Not just anybody, my friends. And we need help, not just say, we need God to help us. And he has come. And he shall be called the Prince of Peace. Because the greatest need, my friends, today, in your life and mine and out there, is not even knowledge and wisdom, which is great. It's not even power and help. It's not even love. Actually, those are essential. It's actually peace. We need peace with God. We need peace. We have broken the law of God. In thought one day, we have transgressed his laws. We have told him to clear off. We have blasphemed his name. We have chosen our own life. And we stand under his wrath, under his judgment. And Jesus, God so loved the world, he sent his son, born of a woman, under the law, that he might redeem those who was under the law. And he came and he died. God was pleased to have all his fullness in his son. He comes. Why? To make peace with himself. That's great. You know, David Atom is a great man and global warming is important. But the most important thing is not global warming. It is important. The most important thing is people are lost without Jesus Christ. We stand under his wrath. But the good news is he has come. God has done something. 
He has done something. He has come. God has come. God, like Jesus means God to the rescue. And he's come and he comes to make peace. He died out, out by a death on the cross. He, he bears your guilt, your sin, your wrongdoing of all your life. Uh, put on Jesus that you might be right with God and inherit life. He comes to do that. And not only that, to perform a community of people, of shalom, of peace. And not only that, he will come again, right in the clouds of glory. Because this is Advent season, and we look for that he will come again in power. And he will, he will, this whole earth will be changed. And we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. That is our hope. That is our hope. Where every day will be more joyful than the previous one. Isn't that wonderful? In glory, you think, that was a great day. Well, you ain't seen nothing yet. Every day gets better. It's glorious as we live in his nearer presence. And that is, he's gone to repair it for us. And we look forward to that. That's Advent. What about? Well, you say, I must stop. How can we be so confident? How can we be so confident? Well, Paul, uh, Isaiah says, to the law and to the testimony. That's how you do it. You come back to this, my friends. This is it. The word of God. Nothing else matters. The best real estate, the word of God. To the law and the testimonies. That's what it's about. Well, yeah, you see, why was the comment? Because Isaiah says, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. He will do it. He is passionately committed to ensure that his son Jesus is glorified on earth. Where he was vilified and rubbished and nailed to a cross, he will be glorified and honoured and blessed on this planet, visibly. And God is a sufficient intensity and compassion to ensure it happens. And all those who belong to him will be caught up in that great day. You say, well, we don't see much today. And we don't see much, do we? (laughs) We don't see much. Well... Just as the believers for 700 years before Christ, they had the word of God. And he says, hang on to that. So now we have the word of God. And we see Jesus. You know, a few, when I was in India once, a friend of ours took us. We were in Missouri in Uttarantial. And he took us, I, I can barely remember, he took us round the side of the, it's about 8,000 in Missouri, round the side of the town. And we looked north to the Himalayas and in the early morning and you see the dawn, the pink dawn on, the, on the, the white snow and then you know the day is coming. My friends, we haven't seen everything but we have seen the dawn. The dawn has come. We have seen Jesus. The writer of the Hebrews says, yet at this present time we don't see everything subject to him but we see Jesus who is made a little lower than the angels and crowned, he's now crowned with glory and honour because he suffered so that he might, by the grace of God, taste death for everyone. And we don't say, but we've seen Jesus, haven't we? We've seen in our darkness, he is the light of the world. He is the wonderful counsellor. In our weakness, we've seen with the Apostle Paul, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Because he's El Gabor, the mighty God. 
I may be miserable so and so and a difficult to live with, but I have a, a saviour who is liked unto me, a heavenly father. And I have one who pleads my case, is the prince of peace, and he will rule the world. And he says, the good news is this, as Isaiah, for unto us, a child is born. Unto you, a child is born. You know, he comes. The, the, one of the funniest things at Christmas is he comes to the shepherds, who really were the scum of, this, of the culture. Nobody trusted the shepherds. They really were. You don't leave your goods around when they're around. <laughs> but the angels came to them and said, to you, to you <laughs> is born this day in the city of David a saviour. To you, of all people, the shepherds, who is Christ the Lord. Right? And that, but none of this works, my friends. Christmas doesn't work unless you make Jesus Lord. All this is just rhetoric and nice and tinsel. But every day we make Jesus King. We make him Lord. And that's how it happens. We say, come Lord, be Lord of my life. Rule my life each day. Lord of my thinking, my heart, my doing, my everything. And he comes. And he comes. Because to us, to you, a child is born. To you, a son is given. And the government should be on his shoulders. And of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Amen.